Good morning. Good morning, Disciples Church. My name is Seth Hahn. Please stand and join me in the reading of God's Word, which comes from uh, Genesis chapter 37, verses 12 through 14, 18 through 36. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what has become of his dreams." But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by. And they drew up Joseph and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Seth, for reading that for us. Good morning and welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you, good to be with you today. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad, as always, that you're here uh, with us this morning. Turn in your Bibles if you're not already there to Genesis 37. You will need your Bibles today. Um, In addition to the bulletin, we'll look at another um, text that's not written there for you as well. So Genesis chapter 37. How many of you are finding out the hard way that you have grown dependent on coffee provided at Disciples Church? on a dreary morning. Uh, we'll try to, try to keep you awake this morning, but thanks so much for being here. Well, after, after months of anticipation, after watching the promotional trailer probably dozens of times, after buying tickets weeks in advance, my family and I went to go see the Super Mario Brothers movie several weeks ago. Can you get a show of hands? How many of you have seen it? 
All right? Not a, okay, good. All right? I promise I won't spoil the ending for you so that you can all go out today and catch that. It's, it's almost like you don't all have elementary schoolers living in your house or something like that. But uh, I have rarely seen my kids so excited as they've been the last, I believe, six months since the first trailer dropped. My boys are uh, fanatics for the Nintendo universe and for Mario and, and Luigi in particular. Uh, and so I don't know how many times that trailer was on our TV and how many times they asked about watching it. And so we got to the theater, we got to our seats, which we had purchased, like I said, weeks in advance. We got our overpriced soda and we got our candy and we camped out to watch this movie. And if you fast forward a few days, the conversation now a couple weeks after the fact has still largely revolved around Super Mario Brothers movie and what happened in that movie and the boys' favorite scenes and all of those kinds of things. And as we were talking about it around dinner this week, they were, uh, they were reminiscing about their favorite scenes and they asked me about something that had happened in the movie and I finally had to admit to them for the first time that I had fallen asleep in the movie theater as we were watching it. And my sons were dumbstruck. I mean, they weren't angry, they weren't frustrated or even disappointed. They just couldn't comprehend how I could have possibly fallen asleep in this movie. And I had to explain to them that it's just part of the aging process. It's just part of getting old. You have a big dinner and you go into a dark theater and it's warm and it's comfortable and it's relatively quiet and and I just fell asleep. And even as we were leaving the theater that day, Jessica had pointed out that there was a woman in our same row who had come with her children and had brought a blanket presumably just so that she could take a nap, right? At least me falling asleep wasn't premeditated. This was just something that kind of happened through the course of the movie. But, but as we were talking about this, I had admitted to them that I had seen the very beginning of the movie and I had kind of vaguely caught the very tail end of the movie, but I had no idea how we got from point A to point B. I had no idea how the tension had been resolved or what all had happened or how the Mario Brothers got out of their jam. I suppose that's a spoiler, but it's a kid's movie, so you probably presume that they're okay at the end of it. Uh, and in a sense, I think that's descriptive of the Christian experience. Stick with me here. I'll explain. See, we know that trouble is going to come. We know that there's going to be moments of stress, doubt, heartache, difficulty, where we know that challenges are going to arise in our life. And we know as believers in Jesus Christ, if you're here and you know Jesus, you know the promises of Scripture that talk about the fact that, that God works all things together for good to them that love Him and are called according to His purpose. We know that God brings about everything in our life for our ultimate joy, not necessarily our temporary happiness, but our ultimate joy and for His glory. But we have very little ability in the middle of difficulty and in the middle of the stressful moments of life to see how it is we're going to get there. And as we come into the story of Joseph this week, what we see is this tension beginning to play itself out in Joseph's life on an extremely heightened scale. We will all find ourselves in moments of tension and difficulty and be unsure as to whether or how we're going to make it through. And what God wants us to see, among other things, through the life of Joseph, is that it is his faithfulness and goodness in the dark nights of the soul that we will all experience. The narrative tells the story of one of the most 
famous betrayals in all of Scripture. And in this text, Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers in the flocks. You'll remember last week we talked about this growing tension between Joseph and his brothers. Joseph had had the, the favor and the love of his father to an unreasonable extent. His brothers had seen this and they had grown hostile towards Joseph because of it. And it all kind of culminated with Joseph sharing these stories of these God-given dreams about his own prominence within the family. It brought the level of hate from his brothers to an extraordinary level. And so Jacob now sends Joseph out to check on his brothers. This is apparently a a fairly commonplace thing within the family. We find Joseph sharing a report about his brothers in verse 2 of chapter 37. And, And now in verse 14, he is given explicit authority over his brothers. And and Jacob apparently is so unaware of the anger that his own favoritism had kindled in the lives of his other sons that he was willing to send Joseph far away from the home, far away from any level of accountability, far away from the safety of their homestead, away to his brothers to find out how they're doing. And Joseph, for his part, wanted to obey whatever instruction his father had given him. You see his response when his father calls him and he says, I'm here, What what is it that you want me to do? And in this moment, this exchange between Jacob and Joseph, we find something that is easy to read past, but is extraordinarily significant in both men's lives. Because this is the last time that Jacob is going to see his favored son for over 20 years. As far as Jacob is concerned for the next 20 years, this is the moment where he had sent his own son to his death. So Joseph heads out from home. He goes to this area called Shechem where he suspected he would find his brothers. When he arrives there, his brothers are nowhere to be found. And now here I have just a brief aside and a little bit of a confession. You'll notice that, in verse, that verses 15 through 17 are omitted in your bulletin. And I cut those from the reading this week just for the sake of brevity. It was already a very long passage that we're reading. But in God's providence and, and perhaps sense of humor, I ended up thinking about verses 15 through 17 a lot this week. So I'm going to draw your attention to those verses. I'll read them for you aloud if you don't have it in front of you. And here's what it says. Joseph arrives at Shechem, looking for his brothers. He can't find them. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now perhaps you can understand why I would leave those verses out. It seems like a relatively insignificant portion uh, in, in the story itself. But what I want you to notice is this. Joseph does not spot the man and approach him asking where his brothers are. This man, who we're not, we're not given his identity, we're not told anything about him, this man rather spots Joseph and goes out of his way to approach him. And some theologians have speculated that this man was an angel placed here by God to direct Joseph to the fate that awaited him. Others think, and this would be my opinion, that this was just a man who God, in his providence, led to Joseph to direct him to where he was supposed to be. But either way, this person was not there accidentally. God had placed this seemingly random individual in this spot for this very specific purpose to lead Joseph to where his brothers are. Now, why do I spend the time to talk about that? Because we know where this story is going to lead. And I think it's worth putting ourselves in the shoes of Joseph for just a minute, because remember, Joseph is not a perfect man. But by all indications, he's a good man. 
He loves God. He loves His Father. He seems to be obedient to whatever it is He's been instructed to do, so much so that he goes to this area and continues to look for his brothers even though he can't find them. And so when he is finally sold into slavery at the end of the story, he might have begun to think about all of the little moments that had led him to that point in his life, about all the things that had to happen in order for him to actually be sold into slavery, that if this exact moment had not happened, he might have been kept from the fate of slavery. And you can imagine in your mind's eye Joseph looking back on his life and looking back on this particular moment and being tempted to ask the question of God, why in the world did you bring that man across my path that day? If that man hadn't known where my brothers were, if he hadn't sought me out to tell me where they had gone, I would have looked around, I wouldn't have been able to find my brothers, I would have returned home, and I would still be safe there today. I wouldn't have had to experience any of this hardship. And it really begins to stir up in our souls that age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? Now, we know that that's sort of a trick question, and we know kind of the Sunday school answer to it, which is that there really are no good people. We're all sinners. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. But the heart of that question still looms large for us. It's really the cry of David throughout the Psalms where he says, God, I'm worshiping you, and I love you, and I'm obeying you, and I'm doing everything you tell me to do, and yet my enemies are succeeding, and here I am in hiding. And this consideration was significant enough to lead Martin Luther to write about it, saying, in the middle of such danger, we see the deepest silence of God and the angels. But behold how much good God draws forth from this. And the implicit promise is that there is a comfort that we can take into these moments in that we're only seeing a part of the picture of our lives. See, we are finite creatures. We're limited by both time and space. And so trying to understand why certain things happen or happen the way that they do or what an infinite infinite God might do through those things becomes an impossible task for us. In the middle of heartache, in the middle of doubt, in the middle of worry and fear and anxiety, as we're trying to navigate, God, why are you allowing these things to happen? We very rarely come to some sort of reasonable answer. In an article entitled, Waiting When God Seems Silent, Randy Alcorn writes this. A pastor friend told me about his experience after his teenage son's death. Nearly every morning for months, said this man, I screamed questions at God. I asked, what were you thinking? And is this your best for me? And finally, do you really expect me to show up every Sunday and tell everyone how great you are? But then, when I became silent, God spoke to my soul. He had an answer for each of my questions. Hear this. Waiting on God involves learning to lay our questions before Him. It means that there is something better than knowing all the answers. Knowing and trusting the only one who does know and will never forsake us. See, Joseph could have driven himself mad with all of the questions of where are you, God? Why did you allow this to happen to me, God? What were you thinking? How could any good come of this? But the truth is that understanding could only come through experience. 
And often in our lives, it's, it's when our souls are laid bare before God and we have nowhere else to turn and nothing else to try that we finally, in utter exhaustion, say, okay, God, I have to trust you to do what only you can do, even though I don't see how you can possibly do anything good through it. And it's easy for us to exert a lot of time and emotional and mental effort thinking about regrets over things we cannot change and resentment about the things we've experienced. But what Joseph's life is teaching us is that God is weaving together all of these seemingly disparate moments to create a tapestry of his goodness and faithfulness so that when it is finished, we might look back and recognize his hand in all of it. It's the prayer of Job who upon losing his entire family and all of his belongings, in a prayer to God says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet, I will argue my ways to his face. See, Job in that moment is not pretending that he enjoyed the suffering that he was experiencing, but he was saying that regardless of what, what happened, he was going to continue entrusting himself to God. So I recently heard one person say it this way. He said, don't pray for God to give you strength. Pray for God to be your strength. And that is a small but substantial difference. And don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying it in a legalistic way where I'm saying you can't pray for God to give you strength. But I think that slight shift in language, instead of saying, God, give me strength, you're saying, God, be my strength. Why? Because it's a reorienting perspective. Because there are so many moments in my life where I don't have the patience, I don't have the strength, I don't have the confidence or the knowledge or the wisdom to get through what it is that I'm experiencing. And I often begin, as this individual stated, I often begin to doubt my own strength and my own ability and my own patience, but but I never have to doubt God's. So this man approaches Joseph. He asks him what he's looking for, and Joseph tells the man in verse 16, I am seeking my brothers, which again is an interesting insight into Joseph's thinking here. He's still interacting with his brothers through this familial bond. And perhaps he's being naive here, but he viewed them as his brothers, and he trusted them as such. Whatever had gone on between them up until this point, at least to the extent that Joseph understood it, was less important to him than the fact that they were his brothers. And Joseph didn't recognize the potential danger that awaited him. So this man informs him they've moved on to a region called Dothan. Joseph's already traveled many, many miles from Canaan to Shechem. Now he travels even further to this region where his brothers are camped out. Verse 18, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to him, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what has become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. He did this in order that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to their father. Now we know that Joseph's brothers hated him. But this is still hard for us to wrap our minds around. To have this level of vitriol and violence in your mind. We're not, we're not surprised that these men are thinking about doing something hateful and even potentially cruel, but to think on something vindictive and cruel and to do it are two different things. 
But as soon as the opportunity presented itself, they jumped at it and took advantage. And our tendency might rightly to be to look at these men with all sorts of horror. How could you do this to your own flesh and blood? But I want you to consider this. How many times in your own life have we been tempted to do things we ought not do and would have never thought we were capable of doing simply because we thought we could get away with it? When opportunity arises for sin outside of of reasonable accountability, the truth of the matter is all of us are far more capable of doing heinous and wicked things than we would ever want to admit. And that's exactly where these men found themselves. They may not have been willing to do this at any other place or at any other time, but in a moment where where they were far from accountability, they gave in to their baser desires. And to paraphrase one author, I do not get to take pride in sins that I have only avoided because of lack of opportunity. In other words, when we're tempted with pride because we have not engaged in particular sins that we find contemptible, recognize that we are all far more capable of heinous actions than we realize given the right circumstances. This is exactly why Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful, For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So the brothers hatch this plan to kill him. They tell their father that he's been murdered by a wild animal, and Joseph, uh, rather, to tell their father that Joseph has been murdered by a wild animal. And Joseph is only saved in this moment because of Reuben's actions. Reuben says, instead of killing him, let's just throw him into this pit, because he intended to come back later to see Joseph. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And this is just unbelievably cold. Rather than actively working to murder him, they throw him into a pit without water, presuming that he'll eventually just die from starvation and dehydration. They strip him of his clothes, and then they sit down to have lunch. This is psychotic behavior. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Verse 26, then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and look at this language and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph out, lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And when Reuben returns to the pit and saw Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone. Where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. Now apparently Reuben had left the side of his brothers and in his absence, the brothers decided, you know what, Joseph is family. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery which I suppose one could read as a sign of compassion, or conversely, one could read that as saying, if we can get some money for him, we might as well do that instead, right? 
So they sell him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. They kill a goat, they dip the coat in, or kill, kill a goat and, and dip his coat in the blood to fool their father into thinking he had been killed by a wild animal. And here's the reason I take the time to go through all of those details, because you can hardly read this account without recognizing all of the ways in which Joseph was a forerunner, a picture, a type of Christ. Joseph was the one who was going to eventually bring salvation and redemption to his family. He was the the one who was going to bring forgiveness to those who betrayed him and bring joy to the father who'd experienced the agony of experiencing the death of his son. And not only was Joseph going to bring salvation to his family, but he was also going to bring salvation by extension to the Gentile Egyptians who had enslaved him. As one pastor wisely recounted, when Joseph's brothers said, let not our hand be upon him, we are reminded of the Jews when Pilate said to them, take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. What did the Jews say? Oh no, let not our hand be upon him. You crucify him. Yes, crucify him by all means, but as for us, it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. Likewise, he was sold as a slave. Jesus was born under the law, a slave to perform all the rigid requirements of a law without mercy. Not one jot, not one tittle of that rigid law was ever relaxed for him. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold for 30. At what price do you value the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he, in your estimation, the pearl of great price? See, as heartbreaking as this very familiar story of Joseph is, and as many lessons as there are for us to learn from it, when we try to find ourselves in this story, we are not the noble and mistreated Joseph. Nor are we the foolish but loving Jacob. Or even the good-hearted but fearful Reuben. No, we are the brothers. We are the ones who are willing to kill the beloved son who came to check on our welfare, who obeyed his father and became a slave to redeem us. You and I find ourselves not in any position of good behavior or good character, but rather we were the ones for whom Christ had to come and die. As Dave talked about on Good Friday, it was as if we were the ones crying out to Jesus on the cross, crucify him, crucify him. And immediately our mind hears that and we go, I would never say that. I would never do that to anybody. And certainly we know better than to claim that we would. But by virtue of the way that we live our lives prior to knowing Christ, we have undoubtedly screamed that at him time and time again. Every time we have looked at God and said, I know what you tell me to do, but I think I know better, we are screaming out to Jesus Christ, crucify him. Every time we try to live in the strength of our own ability to follow the law, we are screaming out to the crucified Christ, crucify him. We are abandoning the one who came for our own salvation. We are selling our brother into slavery. We are the ones for whom Christ had to come and die.
and the amazing, amazing promise of the life of Joseph that we'll continue to unpack over the coming weeks is that Jesus came as the friend who sticks closer than a brother. He came as the friend of sinners. He came as the one through whom we would find salvation. And just as Joseph's slavery would ultimately bring about the redemption and the salvation of his own family, in the very same way, the death of Jesus Christ ultimately brought about our redemption and our adoption into the family of God. And in doing all of that, Jesus has assured us that whatever hardships, sufferings, doubts, and anxieties we experience, he has suffered infinitely more. And in doing so, he doesn't give us a message of buck up and you can get through it. No, the message that he extends to us with no uncertainty is that he will walk with us in it all the way. That in the middle of the trial, in the middle of the unknown, in the dark night of the soul, we do not walk by ourselves. We do not rely on our own strength but rather we depend on the one who is strength for us. So be encouraged, brother and sister, that you have a Savior who loves you that much, despite everything we've done to him. He loves you. He walks with you. And he cares for you. Let's pray together. Well, God, I thank you for your tenderness and your compassion and your grace toward us. God, that though our lives screamed out, crucify him, you didn't hear those screams and walk away unfazed. You didn't just come for the holy and the righteous. You didn't come for those who had their life together or for those who were even tender to the pleas that you gave for salvation, but rather you came for the hard-hearted. You came for the violent You came for the ones that would betray, for the ones that would do the worst when given the option to do so. And God, that in the middle of all of that, not only did you come for our salvation and for our redemption, but you also promised that you would be with us in the middle of the most unknown and fearful moments of our lives. That even when we don't know how the story is going to play out, or how the tension is going to be resolved, or how things could possibly work out for our ultimate joy and your ultimate glory, you are still doing the work that only you can do so that we can find our hope in you. So God, in all of these things, I pray that you would do the work of reminding our own hearts and our own souls what we so quickly and easily forget, that when things go bad, it does not mean you are bad, but rather that you are good despite the bad we're experiencing that you are a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and that you are a faithful one and a lover of our souls. So God, we thank you for who you are for us, in us, and through us, and pray, God, that you would strengthen us today. And in strengthening us, God, that you would remind us that you are our strength. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.